Uh, we are resuming our series, our regularly scheduled programming uh, this, e- uh, this morning. We took a break last week for Father's Day. Uh, I-, I haven't said this in a while. I want to remind you, if you want to be uh, following along in your home study or your personal study, there are flyers. I don't think there are any out there. <laughs> But they're definitely in this foyer, in the main foyer. Uh, There are flyers that have our sermon outline for the year. Uh, Our Sunday morning sermons that we are going to be doing uh, throughout the whole year about important words in the Bible. And so this morning we're going to continue our study of, in this series, uh, you know, it's words of life, faith is the overall word, are a study of our response to God's salvation, right? That's what we're studying, is how does God expect us to respond to his offer of salvation? And so we're going to talk about confession today. And as we study these words, I hope it has become apparent as we've gone over the last several, but even really the words that we've done all year, I hope it's become apparent how surprisingly little has changed in God's dealings with humanity throughout history. That God has not suddenly altered his personality halfway through 2,000 years ago in the offer of Christ, but rather we see that these are the same sorts of things that he has talked about throughout history in the Old Testament as well. And we can think about some examples of this. God who never changes. The father of faith is not a Christian, not somebody who lived after Christ, not one of the apostles. The father of faith lived even before Israel existed. That would be Abraham, right? The father of faith. And we think about faith as this thing that is in the new covenant, and it is in the new covenant, but yet, of course, this is something that God was looking for the whole time. The prophets consistently called Israel to repentance. Again, we might think of repentance as like this New Testament idea, but this is something that God has always desired from his people. I've got to just comment, what is with this gap here? There's nobody sitting here. What has happened here, guys? It's drawing my attention in a crazy way, this weird gap. Um, We can think about holiness, righteousness, atonement, these big, weighty religious words, and yet these all find their origins in God's dealings, even even with the very first people. What does God tell them? Okay, you can eat all the stuff, don't eat this tree. That's a matter of holiness and righteousness. And when they sin, they break God's law, there is consequence. There needs to be atonement. And God, of course, looking forward, even at that time, to the atonement that would be offered for their sin. So these things, these words that we're talking about, are not new. They are not sort of New Testament ideas. These are things that are a continuation of how God has expected to deal with people throughout history. And so it's, as we continue our study about salvation and our response to it, it's not surprising that confession is also something that we find in the Old Testament. This is not a New Testament idea. Numbers 5, 5 through 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. And of course, he's just gone through and talked a bunch about what these would be. And that person realizes his guilt. He shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong. This is early in the history of Israel, right? God's just given them through Moses, the big law, all of the things that he wants them to do. And he tells them what? When you realize that you are guilty, confess. Now, who are they going to confess to? Well, it's going to be the same as it would be in our context. 
the person they did the wrong to, that would be someone they confessed to. Now they're going to go to the priests and confess to the priests. We'll talk about what that means in our context, but they're going to go confess their sins to the priests as they make offering, right? And then they're going to confess ultimately to Yahweh, to God. I've broken faith, the covenant of the Lord. Psalm 32, 3 through 5, we think about David and he has a number of different places where he talks about this, but we can think about this psalm. When I kept silent, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. The weight of guilt. Maybe you felt that before. You've done something wrong and it's really affected, maybe it hasn't affected somebody, but you know God knows. Maybe it has affected somebody in your life. And the crushing weight of shame and guilt. Day by day. Nobody knows that you've committed that sin. Nobody knows that you did the wrong thing. Whatever it is. But you know. And God knows. You might feel this wasting away that he talks about. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That shame, that guilt, that's from God. To let you know, hey, something needs to change here. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We all know what it's like to keep silent in our guilt and our shame. The keeping silent is what we might think about when we talk about repentance, right? We talked about this, I think, a couple weeks ago. The sorrow that leads to death or the sorrow that leads to life. That sorrow is the shame and the guilt, right? The shame and the guilt that can lead to death if we keep it silent, if we respond like Judas, if we let it eat us up. Or what's the alternative? The outlet of confession. To get rid of that weight his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It was hot yesterday, guys, wasn't it? That heat that just sort of saps you and makes you feel tired. I know I can't be the only person that feels that way. He understood it. That's what he's comparing this silence to. That we do, when we do not confess the things that we've done, it drains us. So it should not be surprising then that confession is likewise commanded and encouraged as we come into the new covenant. This is, again, a consistent part of how God expects his people to act. Now, as we think about confession in the New Testament, it is both an essential element of our salvation and a requirement of our continued forgiveness. This is not a one-and-done situation. There's also, as we'll talk about as we go through, a unifying, bonding component of confession between people who profess common beliefs and struggles. That is, my confession binds me to you when you confess similar stuff. There's a unity that comes through confession. So we're going to consider these three things in the time we have left this morning. How confession is tied to our salvation. The continual confession of the Christian life. And then ultimately, why does it matter? So let's begin with this sort of formal confession, right? When you think about confession, I'm talking about it in a series on faith. You're probably thinking of the typical, right? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's the sort of formal confession of our salvation, which is interesting. It originates with Jesus himself. It's a, there's a couple of interesting verses here. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gave life to all things, 
and in the presence of, right? I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. The good confession. This is a phrase that comes up several times in the New Testament. And what is Paul saying? I charge you in the presence of Christ who himself made the good confession. Now, he gives us a hint as to what this means, right? In the presence of Pontius Pilate. And you could think about uh, the number of different gospel accounts that record this. I've chosen John 18. John 18, 37 through 38. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In other versions, it's uh, so you have said. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And of course, Pilate was not ready to hear this idea. What is the good confession? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the truth. That is the good confession. Now, you could phrase that in a number of different ways. We can think about it a lot of different ways that that's been phrased. Even in the, in the New Testament, it's phrased in a lot of different ways what exactly we're confessing. But at the end of the day, aren't, isn't that what you're confessing? I believe that Jesus is king, and I believe that he is the truth. That what he says is true and will govern my life. That's what we're confessing. And so he says in the verse previous in 1 Timothy 6, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This good confession is what Jesus himself said, king of truth. Now, of course, Romans 10, we've read this a number of different times over the last few weeks because it is so pivotal. Romans 10, 8 through 10, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, another way of saying Jesus is King, right? That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the, house, with the ha uh, heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, I wanted to switch up heart and mouth there. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The if statements. We've talked about this before, right? The importance of the if statements. If this thing, then this thing. And of course, the opposite. If not this thing, then not this thing. So we think about the if statement here. What is it? If you confess and believe, you will be saved. The inverse of that would be what? If you do not confess that Jesus is Lord, you will not be saved. You can't just do one of them. You have to do both of them. Have you confessed? that Jesus is Lord? Have you confessed it before others? Are you holding fast? We read hold fast, of course, take hold of the eternal life is what he said to Timothy. Hebrews 10, 23, this idea of holding fast to our confession. What does that mean? I confess that Jesus is Lord, but then what? Am I living my life as if that is true? Because I can just say stuff. I can say anything at all. I am the king of England. Well, I said it. Doesn't make it true. Similarly, you could say Jesus is Lord and that might not make it true in your heart. You could say it without believing it, right? So not only are we confessing that he is Lord, but is it evident in your life that you believe that to be true? Is it apparent that you submit to him as king of your life, that you believe that his words are truth? Now, the second thing here. We don't just confess one time. This is not a one-and-done situation. We continually confess. Confession is a part of our 
habitual walk with the Lord. And again, we go back to the Old Testament there. The, the command to Israel in Numbers, if a person realizes his guilt, he shall confess. Well, how many times is that going to happen in his life? Hundreds. How many times have you sinned? Could you even put a number on it? How many times you've sinned? Oh man, it's got to be a high number for most of us. I guess it depends how long you've been alive. How many times have you confessed? Those numbers should be roughly equivalent. Right? They should be about the same. Now, sometimes you're going to group stuff when you confess, right? I understand that. But there should be some correlation between the number of times you've sinned and the number of times you've confessed. And if the number of times that you've sinned is like astronomically bigger, orders of magnitude bigger than the number of times you've confessed in your life, I'm going to suggest that you haven't confessed enough. Because what do we see in a couple of these verses? Well, the verse that was read just a moment ago, 1 John 1, 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, uh, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin. Now, there's an interesting contrast here, right? Or not a contrast, a tension between the first part of this, do good things, right? Walk in the light, do the things that are good. Do not, uh, do not walk in darkness, living and doing things that are in darkness. And yet at the same time, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's another of those important if statements. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, don't walk in the darkness. And yet we know there will still be sin. That doesn't mean that we're separated from God, right? We understand the blood of Jesus comes and cleanses us, the forgiveness that comes. If what? What's the if? If we continue to confess. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You might think, well, I'm not confessing because I'm not sinning. That's what John is saying. You're lying. You're wrong. If you're thinking, well, I, the reason I don't ever confess is I don't ever sin, you're just flat wrong about that. There is sin in your life that you need to confess. And, you know, we can think about this in a number of ways. The most basic level of this is, yes, you're going to confess it to God. And I would encourage you, if you're not in the habit of it, to develop a habit of confession in your prayers. So that he will forgive you. Isn't that the promise here? If we confess, he will forgive. But there is also an element of confessing to one another. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And in this context, what is the prayer for? Now, he does talk about uh, the one who is sick, but in this particular verse, the prayer is being connected to what? Praying for the sins of the other person. If I know you're a righteous person, and I know that your prayers are powerful because that's what James says, right? Your prayers are powerful because you're righteous. Wouldn't I want you to pray for me? And what do I want you to pray for me? That God will cleanse me and forgive me and heal me. And how are you going to do that? You're going to do that if I've confessed. Because if I have not confessed to you, you don't know how to do that. You don't know what to say. You don't even know that you need to do it. 
And we can think about the idea in Numbers. We didn't read this at the last, the last part of there. Oh, we did read it. He shall make restitution for the sins that he has committed. What's that going to involve, making restitution for the sins that you've committed? You're going to confess, I hurt you and I'm sorry. I did this thing I shouldn't have done. I'm going to confess it to the person that I've hurt in my efforts to make restitution, in my efforts to make things right. So we confess as part of our salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. We understand that, right? We confess our, our submission to Jesus as Lord, but we continue to confess in our Christian life because I continue to sin. And I need to confess that to God, and I need to confess that to others. And again, very simple question. When was the last time you did that? I can't answer that for you, but it is a question that we all need to think about. We'll end with this. Why is it so important? What matters? Why, why does this matter for us? Why does God care about it so much? The importance of confession. From the beginning, God has wanted people to confess their sin. It's interesting. Adam and Eve, they take the fruit in the garden, and then they hide, and God confronts them. And what does God want them to do? He wants them to confess, doesn't he? The way that he phrases that. It's interesting, he doesn't just directly confront them with it. He gives them an opportunity to come clean. They don't. Pass the buck. Blame other things. But he does give them that opportunity at the very beginning, after the first sin. He gives them an opportunity to confess. From the beginning, God has wanted this from his people. As a means of a couple of things, I think. It removes excuses, doubt, and confusion. The act of confession makes it abundantly clear, not to God, because he knows. God doesn't need that. You and I need it. The removing of excuses that comes from confession. That I am truly and fully acknowledging my need for God. That when I confess, I am making it plain in my own heart that I understand why I need God's forgiveness. That understanding and that clarity can only come from confession. Because as we shift blame and we want to make excuses and we want to sort of uh, rationalize, the end result of that is what happened with Saul, right? Saul, who is confronted several times, and Saul makes excuse after excuse. Oh, it was the people, they made me do it. Or, oh, there was some reason why I had to do this thing. Or, oh, please don't. And at the end of that, what does God say to him? I am going to take the kingdom from you. As opposed to David, who did bad stuff too. David, who did some bad things, and yet when he was confronted with it, what? He made it plain and clear, yes, I've done the wrong thing. God was not looking for a perfect king because that didn't exist. God was looking for someone who would not make excuses for their sin and would plainly confess their need for him. Confession acts as a removal. It forces us to confront and admit our sin to ourselves. And only by doing so can we move forward, right? Only by admitting and confronting our sin can we repent. Because I understand this is the thing that needs to change. I understand this is the thing I need to do differently. I understand this is the way my life needs to be altered. Only by openly and honestly admitting my sin to myself and to God can I be able to move forward into repentance and forgiveness and healing. But as we said, 
This also bonds us to each other, right? This is a, a thing that is not just between us and God, but between one another. We know who shares our purpose and goals by who confesses what we confess. And this applies in the both confession of salvation, our formal confession of faith of God in God, but also our confession of sin. That I know who to encourage and support, and I know how to encourage and support because we have confessed to one another our struggles and our sins and our difficulties and our failings. And so my prayers and my encouragement and my help can be directed, not in a general sense, not in sort of a vague idea, but I can be direct and pointed in my encouragement of you because I know the thing you're struggling with and you know the thing that I'm struggling with and we can then move forward together. Understanding that yes, we're not perfect, but we're striving for the same goal, aren't we? And in our imperfections, we understand that none of us are better than the other. It is the confession is the great leveler because we all understand that we are desperately in need of God's forgiveness. That I am not superior to you because I need it just as much as you do. And you are not superior to me because you need it just as much as I do. Ultimately, confession is a critical part of our Christian witness. As we will end with this verse in Luke 12, 8 through 9. The idea of confessing our faith in God and our sins. Luke 12, 8 through 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. It can be scary to confess. I understand. It's hard to be vulnerable and to be honest and to be showing, maybe we think of showing weakness. But here, I want to be clear. Our confession is 100% a necessary part of our relationship with Yahweh. And this is not necessarily talking about sin, but the idea of our confession in salvation. That you confess by the way that you live and in your words too. When people ask you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why will you not do this? Why will you do that? What, 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 are, what is the deal with you? That you will confess what? I am the way that I am because Jesus is Lord. Because his word is truth. Because all who are servants of the truth will submit to him. And if we do that, then what does Jesus say? then I will acknowledge you before God, before the angels of God. I will say, yes, that person, I know they're imperfect, God. I know they're imperfect, but that person belongs in heaven. Don't you want Jesus to do that in judgment? I think about that scene in judgment, when that will be, how that will be. I don't exactly know what exactly that'll look like, but I know that as I stand before the judgment seat of God, I want Jesus to advocate for me, don't I? To look at my imperfect life and to say, nonetheless, God, let him in. I want that. I need that. We all do. And we know, ultimately, that confession is not a thing to be ashamed of. It is a powerful part of God's spirit working in us. If you're here today and you're thinking, 
man, I've got stuff to confess. I know that can be scary, but the proper response for all of us is not to be judging or to think down on you, but to lift up those who confess because we need to do it too, don't we? And we know how we can help you then. But in a more immediate sense, if you're in this room and you have not experienced the forgiveness of God, you've not confessed him as Lord, do that now so that he will do it in judgment, which could be when? When could that be? Five minutes? An hour? Could be a thousand years for all I know. But we need to act as if it is soon. Come while we stand and sing.